No changes are given. And this is the No Change Given podcast with me, Sophia Herod. It's a podcast all about change. And the guests who join me pave the way for a new and better world. In this episode, I caught up with Miriam Lancewood, survivalist and woman in the wild, who lived in New Zealand with her husband, Peter, for seven years. So I'm here with Miriam Lancewood on the podcast today. And Miriam, tell us all about yourself and what you do. Oh, hello. My name is Miriam Lancewood. And... I am the most amazing thing we have done, my husband and I, is to survive for seven years in the wilderness of New Zealand. And uh, we pretty much roamed around like nomadic people, like our ancestors, basically. And we slept in a tent, always cooked in a fire. And I learned how to hunt with a bow and arrow and later with a rifle. So we pretty much lived off hunting and gathering those seven years. But since I met my husband, that's almost 18 years ago, we have been nomadic all over the world, really. So at the moment, we are in Bulgaria, East Europe, that is. Wow. And it's not just surviving sort of in the wilderness. It was up in the mountains, wasn't it, within the forest? In New Zealand, yes, Mm. definitely. Because Mm. um, all the towns are around the coast. So to get away from people and into no man's land, you have to go up high in the mountains. Yep. So we're almost up high. What was that like? Oh, that was amazing. It was everything. It was boring. It was exciting. It was um, frightening. It was exhilarating. It was just everything. One thing it was is I missed nothing because it was 100%. It was just a full life. Wow. So it was like, go, go, go. No matter what, when you woke up, something was always happening. You either had to think about food or what was going on in your brain during that time? No, sometimes nothing was happening. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely nothing. And then we had to learn to do nothing. And you think, well, that's easy. But no, it's not. Have you ever done absolutely nothing? Like meditation is something, right? Mm. But absolutely nothing. So how long did you have to do nothing for? Well, you know, that's very hard all day, but say for a few hours and then I'll busy myself with gathering firewood or, you know, lighting a fire mm-hmm. or um, go and have a look around, see if I can hunt something, you know. I do something, but, you know, for hours sometimes, especially when it's raining and we are in a tent, then we do nothing. So you just lie there looking up. Yeah. The t- <laughs> you have to have a really good partner, I think, <laughs> during that yes. time, don't you? I bet you get to know each other pretty well. Yes, we must have spent so much time together compared to other people in the mm. last 18 years. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so you and your husband have got quite a beautiful story, actually. You met when you were out traveling in India, is that right? Yes, that's right. After I finished my study of physical education, I went to Africa to work there as a volunteer for a year. And uh, after that, I went to India to travel. And after five months on my own, I met Peter, a New Zealander. And he was 30 years older than I was. And so I was 22 and he was 52. Had I met him in Holland, I would have thought he was way too old. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in India, you can do anything you like. (laughs) You make up your own rules. And so I felt really free. And I thought, yeah, now why not give it a go? I mean, who is judging? No one. Yeah. And I um, I don't lose anything by going with him. And that was really the beginning of my adventurous life was meeting him. And obviously you were an adventurous person before. You were a sportswoman, weren't you, before? So, you know, you were used to sort of pushing your body to the limits and and going out there and trying new things, I suppose, were you? Yes, indeed. And also, you know, testing what is the body capable of. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot more than you think. 
And also how much, um, so I was doing pole vaulting athletics when I was living in Holland wow. on a very high level. And so you really learn that the mental aspects of sports is almost more important than the physical aspect, especially something scary like pole vaulting. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I learned a lot about the, um, you know, how to calm your mind down <laughs> while um, being absolutely focused on your tasks, such as pole vaulting. And do you think that's really important when you are in the wild, that you don't panic if you can't find food? You're like, we will find food. Let's just come back to center again and recoup and then we'll find our food. Yeah, I've never panicked because I'm not finding food. No. Okay, good. <laughs> also, <laughs> I, we are. I would. <laughs> I'm used to having food every day. I'm not sure how I would cope if I, I didn't know when my next meal was coming. Oh, yeah, no. Um, I always sort of think positively, like, okay, I'm not seeing a, a rabbit now, but I might see a rabbit in the next 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. So it could happen any time, you see. So I'm almost, yeah. you know, positive. And does it make you less greedy when you when you then come back into the real world and you you have these supermarkets just abundant with food? Yeah, well, it's very hard not to eat it all. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I've become more greedy. <laughs> because it's so easy. And you never yeah. know when you have to do without again. So you sort of overeat a little bit. But um, the thing is that, um, so we lived seven years in the wilderness, but the last year we walked the Te Arawa Trail, which is a 3,000 kilometers from the north of New Zealand all the way to the south. And after that, we thought, wow, this is a cool way of living. Let's walk through Europe. So we walked all through Europe and into Turkey, another 2,000 kilometers. And the beauty of long walking or through walking, as they call it, is that you have such a good appetite. You're always hungry. And so the food tastes so good. And, um, well, when you're living in town, there's so much food, but it doesn't taste so good anymore. Such a pity. Because I suppose you're so hungry and you're always moving. Like what kind of food do you eat? In New Zealand, we used to gather uh, plants, edible plants, mm. and berries, but they're not all year round. The totra berries and snowberries is basically only in February, March, April. Wow. So it's not very long, yeah. No. But um, the tiny berries, the totra berries, and then we see a little bush full of it, and then we just sit down. We eat for hours and hours. <laughs> so it's really nice eating. Mm. It's a joy. And what's it like hunting for your own food? Um, well, I used to be vegetarian. I used to, my mum never cooked meat, so none of us ate meat. And um, I was always like, no animal needs to die from me. I mean, I thought eating meat was murder, mm -hmm. which it basically is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> much is clear. <laughs> um, but when we went to live in the wilderness, I thought, well, it would be really cool to live off hunting and gathering. And uh, that's when I decided if, I, if I'm going to eat meat, then I will hunt it myself with my bow and arrow. And so, but it was so difficult to learn how to hunt. Uh, it took me six months to learn how to hunt. But when I finally shot my first goat and ate everything, you know, even the organs and the brain and, you know, and use the skin for everything is so rewarding. It's unbelievable. Really, as the Maori believe that you eat the power of the animal. And that's exactly what it feels like. You become what you eat. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it's, you know, were you squeamish before having not ate meat before and then you're suddenly going out and hunting it? 
Yeah, and it's really horrible. Like if I shoot in the stomach, you know, the intestines come out. It smells disgusting. It's really, really horrible. But I thought, okay, this is what I have to do because, you know, that's what we set out to do. We are going to survive here, right? Wow. Yeah. So you have to have a really strong mental attitude then, don't you? Like you mentioned before with your sports days, having to say like, no, this is what's happening. This is what my goal is. I'm going to have to achieve it. Yeah. Oh, yes, indeed. Also, the best thing to have is no other option. So we didn't have a way back. So we gave up our rental home and we set off with a pack and a bow and arrow and some food supplies into the mountains. So we had no no way to go back. So when we were stuck in the rain, what were we going to do? Nothing. We have to just uh, continue, persevere. A lot of people might be thinking when they're listening to this, why did you want to do it? We wanted to find out what happens to the body and mind when living far away from civilization. So it was like a huge experiment on ourselves. We were our own guinea pigs. What better way to test it than yourselves, right? Yeah, exactly. And so what's the effect of humanity? What's the effect of technology? All of these questions. So really dive deeply into those sort of things. Mm. So a meta question, like an overarching question, like what happens to body and mind, uh, it's very important to have. And then don't try to answer it straight away, but um, give yourself five years or so to answer that question. I think uh, I would recommend other people to do that. (laughs) Yeah, because you weren't supposed to go out there for seven years, were you? It's supposed to be, was it 18 months or so? Uh, Just, yeah, four seasons only, indeed. Mm. So we want to do something interesting because we read all those expedition books about people going to the North Pole or South Pole or jungle or whatever. Mm. And we also want to do an expedition. And we thought, okay, we're going to try this four seasons. And after that, we'll see what we're going to do. But after that first year, we saw no reason to go back to a job in town and normalcy. No. And you don't need to think about money. You're not in the sort of system, are you, anymore, I suppose? Is it quite refreshing? Yeah, indeed. I think working costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to have a car to get to your job. You need to have the right clothes. You need to have a cell phone, all the rest of it. And uh, yeah, you save a, yourself a lot of money by not working. <laughs> That's so interesting. And it is interesting to me that you say that the hardest part for you was the boredom. Because it's not yep. even something I think I'd think about if I was in the wilderness. I think, how am I going to survive? That's my first thought. That would be the scary part. But the boredom is not something I'd take into account. What was that like for you oh, mentally? I didn't I didn't think of it either. So the most surprising thing was like, oh, the first day was like, this is fantastic. We're in paradise. Aren't we lucky? Mm. And then the next day is like, oh, we're going to sit here for four months? <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> and so I realized that I, I had avoided boredom all my life, always trying to keep busy. Right? Boredom is a horrible feeling, but uh, hardly anyone experiences it these days because you're so busy yeah, to avoid boredom. But we had to go through this boredom and restlessness, and only then our mind would calm down. And that took about two weeks to find the rhythm of nature because all these trees and animals, they live in a much slower pace. Mm. So that was one of the things we found out. And how did you do that? How did you connect yourself to nature? Just being part of it, was it? Yeah, well, by doing nothing. Mm. If we had a cell phone or any other device with us, it would not have happened. We would have, our mind would have been speeding up all the time because that's the effect of the uh, telephone. 
Mm. Um, but uh, we had no, we had nothing. We didn't even have a clock. So by just um, surrender and uh, well, just living, that happened automatically. So I think it's a natural state of mind, and the technology alters it into something unnatural. So if you are going to sit in a forest, it will happen to you too. I kind of want to now. Although you mentioned some <laughs> parts of it were terrifying. I want to know these terrifying parts of it. <laughs> what were some of the terrifying stories that happened to you while you were out there? <laughs> the most terrifying thing is thunderstorms. Because we are in a plastic tent and then we could hear it coming like the roar of the wind and then falling branches, even falling trees and then lightning, and we're like, oh, when will it happen? It feels very, very vulnerable. Mm. And so, um, but it passes. It always passes. And so we suffer from acute, severe fear, which is very different from um, anxiety all the time, like chronic anxiety. So, uh, and I think that's very much like our ancestors lived, like a, a lion is chasing you and you're afraid and then you can relax again. Mm. And it serves you well, the, the fear in, in those kind of primal settings, doesn't it? You need to be afraid because you need to know I'm not going outside into that. I'm going to stay in my tent where I feel slightly more safe. I don't know, <clears throat> because once I had to cross a river that was flooded, I should never have crossed. It's the worst thing I've ever done. But at that time, I didn't have any fear. I just thought, okay, I have to now, you know, focus on this, make sure my feet are steady, etc. And then later that evening, when I was safe again, I was thinking back of the experience. And then my whole body started to experience fear. So I thought, hey, how strange. What is fear caused by? Thoughts or the actual event? Wow, that's profound. That's really profound. Yeah. That's interesting. It's almost then not the event. It's it's the, no. the thought, like you said. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So how did you overcome that eventually then? Did you have to sort of come back out of your head again, basically? Yeah, when I realized, like, hello, <laughs> it was five <laughs> hours ago that I crossed the river. Yeah. Then I thought, oh, how interesting indeed. So a lot of our fear is caused by thinking about it. Wow. So and how helpful is that fear that your whole body paralyzes and your heartbeat goes, you know, super high? And um, how much use is that? Well, it's not, not is it? because you would have been potentially unsteady on your feet, like you said. And why was it such a bad idea then for you to have gone and gone past that river during that time? Well, I had brought food supplies up the mountain mm -hmm. and I stayed there the night. And next day I came back. But in that night it was a huge amount of rain. And all the rivers flooded. But in New Zealand, the rivers go up real quick and then down really quick too. I should have just waited. But I was so keen to go back to Peter. Mm -hmm. I was just like, I have to go back. I have to go back. And I get through this. Yeah. So uh, really dumb. And uh, that's called the New Zealand death. Death by crossing rivers. It's oh, very really? dangerous. Well, I suppose the, the undercurrents as well in rivers are, are very, very dangerous, aren't they? That's just, yeah. what is it that need, though, to be with someone? Do you think if you were out there on your own, you would have struggled a lot more? I would never have done it. <laughs> <laughs> Day one, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's way better with the two people. Yeah, mm. you'd be so lonely. I mean, you could do it like, a, like an achievement. It's an achievement. But uh, a good time? Nah. No. Not me. <laughs> but why do you think so many 
more men do this sort of thing there you know when I was looking up survivalists and um, wilderness experts it was always men 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 and I had to type in female survivalists and, and I found you and I found everything you said this woman is amazing what she does is incredible and I really want to inspire other women to feel like they can do that too so so why do you think a lot of women kind of don't feel like they can go out and do that as well um I don't know but it's a little bit in our western culture I bet you saw a lot of you know western men doing this it's yes. the liberal individualism and what's the pinnacle of liberal individualism that you go on your own into the wilderness where there is no one and you look after yourself you know that's like the true independence isn't it yes yeah that's that's in our culture but like in maybe in african cultures you do things with your tribe or you know in your group and you mm. accomplish something with the whole group not on your own on your own would be just selfish would be seen as selfish yeah and why would you do that and even a punishment, you know, that you get excommunicated and you're on your own, you're more likely to die. <laughs> oh, yeah, <that's> so, um, <laughs> yeah, it's very that's... much our culture. But yeah, why are women not, not going? Um, women feel more vulnerable, I think. Mm. And maybe don't see the point, like I was just saying, I'm not going on my own. Yeah. Um, and a bit scary. I don't know. I mean, I think it's because, like you said, I feel the vulnerability aspect of it, feeling like we're not as strong. Um, but I think women are proving now that they can be as strong, that we can go to the gym and we can work out and we can get muscles and lift the weights with the men. A friend of mine has started personal training. She's proving that she's tiny, but she lifts these huge weights um, and it's seriously impressive. So I think that vulnerability aspect of it is slowly diminishing. Do you think that you had different needs to your partner, Peter, when you were out there? Was there anything different or did you both kind of need the same things? Um, yes. In our first winter, see, I grew up as a vegetarian. So I mm. go, I can eat beans every day. So we had beans and lentils and rice with us. But he needs more meat. And he was really suffering to keep warm in that first winter. So much so that he lost appetite. Isn't that strange? Wow. So if the food is not good and doesn't, you know, nourish him, he loses appetite. Well, that didn't happen to me, luckily. <laughs> but it took me some time to get the meat because that was my responsibility. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so we woke up with hunger pains in the morning because the meat and rice just, the, I mean, sorry, the lentils and rice wasn't enough. We needed meat. Mm. Yeah, and I think that is the bodily difference. But that might also just because uh, be just because I was brought up vegetarian. I don't know. So when was the decision, right, I can't do this anymore, we need meat? <laughs> let me let me go hunting. Oh, no, I was trying all the time. I was just failing. <laughs> oh, really? Is it really hard? Is it really, really hard? Yes, it's really hard because also we didn't know anything. So okay. I thought, okay, I'm going, I'm going with this bow and arrow and there's a lots of wild goats in New Zealand introduced from England. And so they don't have a natural predator. They eat all the forest and they're seen as a pest. Doesn't mean to say that so too many of them, but they just they don't belong there. The same as the deer and the pig and the stoat and the rats and all all of the mammals. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I thought um, I'm going out there with my bow and arrow and shoot goats. I didn't know that in some valleys there are goats and other valleys not at all. There are only a certain regions. We should have asked this. We should have asked other hunters, like in that whole region, are there any wild goats? They would have said, no, you should go over there. 
So yeah, that's why. Did I you find, find you it. had to move around a lot then to kind of go with the flow of the nature? Yeah, that was another reason why we were nomadic. So we was later on, later years, we would put pitch our tent in a valley, and then I would go hare hunting, because hares is a good sized animal. Because of course we don't have a fridge, mm-hmm. and we can keep or eat. I mean to say, we have, we have to eat the animal straight away. And so hair is good size. But anyway, after a while, I pretty much shot all the hairs in the valley. Not all of them, <laughs> but maybe 90%. So then we have to go to the next one. Oh, Just like our hairs. ancestors. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I suppose it's, it's the only way to survive in that environment. Um, but what was the weirdest no. thing you've ever, you've ever eaten then in that environment? Um, later in 2019, I organized an epic female expedition and me and my friends ate uh, crickets and grasshoppers oh. because uh, we couldn't find anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose that's much harder to shoot with a bow and arrow, arrow right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. You have to de-wing them oh. and then sort of, um, yeah, it's a Even bit different. Hold. But um, nevertheless, tasty. Yeah. Where are they? And brains. Brains is very nice too. Deer brains. Uh, yes, the grasshoppers. Yeah, we cooked them into a patty. Oh, so are you not vegetarian anymore? You'll you'll eat meat when you're in the normal world now. Um, no, right now we're in Bulgaria, and mm. um, no, I've reverted back to vegetarianism. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to buy meat in the supermarket. Yeah, uh, no, I, I still like don't that. know my way around there. The, you know, the, the butcher. I don't know what what to uh, <laughs> what to get. <laughs> you're like, where's the brains? <laughs> yeah. I want steaks. <laughs> I want brains. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it doesn't funny. look like an animal in the shop. No, but, no, uh, no I think it's healthier. Yeah. And I'm good. You know, I can survive on beans. Mm. But just to add, in, so in New Zealand, all the animals there are introduced. So the government is encouraging hunting and you can hunt all year round, unlike here in Europe. And um, license there is easy to get. And um, if the hunters don't do their job, they will throw 1080 poison from helicopters into the forest. So uh, a lot of people say, how cruel that animals die. Well, they're going to die anyway. (laughs) So uh, this is much more humane because 1080 poison is a slow way of dying. I much prefer that you hunt them, especially doing something like that, like an experiment when you're going back to nature. But wasn't it hard? Because I've seen a photo with you and your bow and arrow, and it's not a big bow and arrow. It's quite a small bow and arrow. (laughs) How did you learn to use that? I mean, that that must have been so hard to get the hairs because they're big, but they're not that big, are they? No, it's almost impossible to shoot a hare with a bone arrow. So yeah. after two years, I discovered that um, bone arrow is really quite cruel because it doesn't kill the animal straight away. You often have to track it and it wounds the animal and also quite expensive because you think, oh, you can reuse an arrow. Well, that's it's a good idea. But often I lost arrows in the high grass or bushes or wherever, you know. Yeah, And so I discovered that it's much more humane to hunt with a rifle. So after a couple of years, I hunted with a uh, an old-fashioned rifle. Yeah. And how was that? Was Which that was so very easy. <laughs> so much easier. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, also because I started the hard way. Yeah. Oh, well, at least you started the hard way. Then you're like, oh, yeah. why did I do that for so long? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's um, good I learned how to stalk, which is trying to get very close to the animal, like 30 meters. Okay, okay. Yeah. So you really were like a lioness. 
in a while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> crawling <laughs> over the ground, waiting. Yeah, you have to take your time. Yeah, was it quite it's empowering really though? Yeah, it was amazing to then finally come back with a goat in your neck, you know, and then walk back to camp. Um, and then Peter being so happy with the meat. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's indescribable. And it feels just so real. Mm. I don't know why that word comes to mind, but it feels so real. Yeah, like you're actually living. This is life. Yeah. Wow. Yes, indeed. Life and death. And uh, that's what we're all part of. And that's always what I've got around my neck here is the horn of the first goat that I shot with bow and arrow. Just to remind me that we're all part of this cycle of life and death. We're now in the life, the living bit, but death is yet to come. That's beautiful. That's really <laughs> yeah. beautiful, although slightly scary. Yeah, it's sobering, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. We're going to die one day. We just went to any yeah. river river crossing. The the rivers yeah. are off limits. <laughs> yeah, Unless not they're stupid low. way. Yeah. Nothing is worth dying for. No, sure. no. But so if, for example, there was an apocalypse and you found yourself in the woods and you were on your own, what's the first thing you do? Like, what's the first five things to survive that you need? The first five things? Well, the, my first question is, what are you doing there in the woods in the first place? <laughs> Just okay. by accident or something, by right? You're gone you're on a weekend woods. trip. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you're the lost in the woods trip on and, your own. <laughs> and then you hear the news. <laughs> <laughs> Just before your cell phone switches off, that this was the nuclear war that you've always been fearing. Yeah. Right. Well, first, you need to get your water, right? Yeah. Not water. And where do you get your water from? And then secondly, you have to find some way to make a fire. So good luck with that. <laughs> it all depends where you are, you know. In mm -hmm. New Zealand, it's wholly different from, say, a desert area like Australia. Mm -hmm. Australia will be totally different. How are you going to find water in Australia? I don't know. How did you find um, water in New Zealand? How did you make sure it was clean water? Oh, all water in the mountains is super clean. It's the best oh, water in the world. Oh, yeah. perfect. So we never even in a water bottle. We just drink out of the river. Wow. Yeah. So you never had like tummy bugs or anything from it? No, no, it's really? super, super clean. Mm. Yeah, that's not a problem at all. But fire is more problematic because it's often so wet <laughs> mm. because that's by so many rivers. And then, uh, yeah, you have to find some sort of shelter. Um, in New Zealand, you get tortured by the sand flies, which is this little biting fly, like a tiny mosquito. Oof. And if you don't find some sort of covering, you would just <laughs> die of, um, that would be just so painful and so incredibly annoying. But in other parts of the world, you need shelter from maybe animals. If you're in Africa, Mm. Um, you have to b build some sort of hut, right? Wow. Okay. So, yeah. Did you come across any bears? No. New Zealand used to be a bird island because it's so far away from Australia, two thousand kilometers. That no animal made it there. So it's only birds, and it was interesting that every bird took the role of an animal, like you have, like a cow bird, that was the moa that was just grazing the grass. And you have a monkey bird, which is the kia, which is a very clever sort of a parrot. And so it's fascinating. So the bird life is unbelievable when they first arrived some 200 years ago. Um, and then the English brought all these animals because there was hardly anything to eat apart from the birds. Um, and so they brought the pigs and the, the goat and the deer and every, all of those animals. But, of course, they wouldn't bring a bear. 
<laughs> or a snake yeah. we want to make this a little bit harder for ourselves let's get those snakes and bears over here <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no luckily so that i feel so safe in new zealand oh, i've wow. never felt threatened and not mm. for people either okay. no super super that's a good country as a woman to um to experience the wilderness on your own yeah well, that's for good sure. to know so if there's ever an apocalypse go to new zealand you can survive yeah. in the forest there <laughs> Just don't yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, we we talked about this often. Um, what do we do in apocalypse? Mm-hmm. And um, then I'll have my bow and arrow, and I thought I can always make arrows. That is difficult. Don't underestimate making arrow. You have to be dead straight, otherwise I want to fly straight. Uh, and then the tip has to be something that kills an animal. How are you going to make the tip? And then okay, alternatively, you buy a one thousand bullets for your gun, but what are you going to do when the last bullet has been shot? Yeah, that's a bit scary. Can you do like build traps? Would that work? Traps? Uh, yeah, snares. Yep, mm-hmm. definitely. But for that, I'll try that also. But you have to know precisely where the animals are walking. And then if there's like two rocks where the animals always go in between, then you put a snare there. But you only find that out by being there for some time. So when you're walking through an, an region and only saying one night in one place, then you, you will always fail. Yeah, so you need to be settled a little bit more. Oh. Yeah. Oh, there's me thinking, no, I, I know what I'm doing. I've watched enough movies. Uh, <laughs> I think I could survive, but no. And also, do you find that also the berries and things, how do you know what berries aren't poisonous or mushrooms, for example, in the forest? How do you know mushrooms? Yeah, before we set off, Peter read this thick book, like a six centimeter book about mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And he studied it for six months. And in the end, he closed the book and he said, Right, we're not going to touch any mushroom. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, because they all look too similar, don't they? The poisonous ones or the not poisonous ones. Oh, God. yeah, all too similar. Mm. Yes, indeed. And some. You think, oh, okay, if I eat the wrong one, I get pretty sick straight away. No, you might get kidney failure after three months. And what? then you've forgotten that you ever ate a mushroom. So now I found mushrooms a bit scary. Oh, but right. yeah, some people know all about mushrooms and they're good on them. Yeah. And I'm sure they're a good source of nutrients. Okay. But um, uh, plants, yeah, we just learned that. Plants, which plants can you eat? Which berries can you eat? Yeah, make sure you know, though, and don't make a stupid mistake like the Into the Wild guy. I was guy literally that, thinking about him and how he yeah. starved to death. I mean, what, were there any times that you were really ill, though, and then you were stuck out in the wilderness? Never in New Zealand, but a few years ago we were in Australia, and Peter is always pretty reckless with washing himself with water because he's used to uh, New Zealand. Mm. And in Australia, the water is just dirty and stagnant. And so he washed his face, I think. And then he got a stomach bug and we were in the middle of the desert. And then he got diarrhea. And then he started to faint because of, you know, dehydration. Luckily, we were close to a hospital and I could bring him there. That was Mount Isa. And uh, soon after, he contracted acute renal failure, kidney failure. And that... Um, yeah, very serious. Uh, he was five weeks in the hospital, and then he said, right, you can go home now. And we're like, oh, yeah, we don't have a home. But anyway, we stayed with a friend. We went to New Zealand, and um, the man said, you should recover within uh, a year or so. 
But when that didn't happen, um, he was diagnosed with chronic kidney failure, which means you're going to die unless you take a um, kidney transplant and go on dialysis, which is a means to clean your blood. And uh, so we looked at all the pros and cons. It sounds good, like, oh, just get a new kidney. But no, it's not that easy. Mm. And um, Peter looked at it all and said, look, I'd rather die than live in a, a town next to the hospital and be dependent on machines. Oh, and like, wow. oh, holy shit. <sighs> so we went to rent a nice home in, um, in Marahau in a beautiful region in New Zealand. And uh, for the first time in nine years, we were in a nice house because you're not going to save money, you know, when you're going to die. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we went for little walks and um, we were preparing for him to die. But he didn't die. He recovered. So the chance of that happening, the chance of that happening is 3%. But you have to be ready to die in order to heal yourself almost, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's amazingly courageous. Mm. And that's just, that shows that how courageous Peter is, in my opinion. Because it's all very easy to say, I will do this and this. Oh, yeah, wait till you are almost dying. And then see how difficult it is to stay calm and to say, okay, I'm not going to rush to a doctor or hospital. I'm not going to do dialysis. I'm just going to stay here and recover. I trust my body to recover, just like the trees outside. That's that's given me shivers the whole way down my body. <laughs> and just like, just being able to trust like that is so hard like like so it's even hard you know a job application for example if you apply for a job like waiting for that job application and having the trust is hard enough let alone with your life like that's his life and having you as well as well with him it makes me quite emotional just for you and you know you must have had to be so strong yeah indeed I was very accepting like, oh, what could I do? I offered my kidney. And I thought that would be kind of cool that, you know, we both, you know, my kidney in his body. And then I thought, okay, but what about the moment I go in the hospital and they put me on my tummy on the table and and drive me into the operation room, you know, and then my kidney get taken out. <gasps> That's a bit scary thought. Mm. Yeah. But luckily, Peter said he didn't want my kidney. Oh, bless Lucky him. for me. Mm. But you would have done that, which is is lovely. <laughs> you know, it's always yeah, the question: really Would you give someone it. your kidney? <laughs> That's real yeah. love. Is he completely better now? Then he's he's are you able to go out and explore and everything? Yes, but he can't walk with a heavy backpack anymore. Not okay. no long walking. Mm-hmm. But he is now sixty nine, so not many people of that age will do that anyway. I don't think. No, I think he is almost well, almost better than people of his age. Mm-hmm. So he can't complain. No, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you look—you so can—you can see you look so vibrant and young because you've never done any damage to your body. I watched your YouTube channel about how you—you you don't drink alcohol, and then you went to a party, and <laughs> people were <laughs> drinking alcohol. And you were like, "Why do people do this? <laughs> do you drink alcohol now that you're out of the wilderness?" Sometimes a glass or so, but uh, yeah, I don't really like the taste of it. But I do like the effects. <laughs> it's amazing how that, you know, if you think about it, it's like a fermented grape. How come that changes slot immediately your mind? I know. 
Isn't that fascinating? It I is. It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And especially after having been so serene for so long in such a tranquil environment, obviously it was changing with the, the nature and the seasons, but you know, that must be quite a buzz afterwards, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and right now we are in an off-grid cottage, two kilometres from a village, and you can only walk to this place. And, uh, yeah, it's just very peaceful, and we sleep so much. Mm. Um, we don't have electricity, so we sleep, and there's no lights, so you, go, you automatically get tired when it's dark. So in the winter, we sleep at least 10 hours a night, and I think it's necessary in order to keep your battery charged. So tell us about your, your book as well. Let's go into that a little bit. So, so what's your book all about? Because you've got a second one that's just come out in 2020, don't you, as well? Yes, that's right. So my first book is about those seven years in the wilderness of New Zealand. It's called Woman in the Wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, as you pointed out, there are not many women in the wilderness. And um, in actual fact, I think if I was a man, the publisher wouldn't even be interested in publishing it. <laughs> so it's, it's a little niche. Yeah. yeah. But just by chance, you found it as well. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And the second one is called Wild at Heart. And that is about our journey, walking journey through Europe and to Turkey, and then the whole disaster in Australia mm-hmm. with the whole kidney failure. And my epic expedition, which I had set up before. So I had planned this expedition and worked towards it for a year. And in the middle, Peter got this kidney failure. So I'm like, oh, should I uh, cancel the whole lot or should I go ahead with it? So one of the most difficult things was to leave him with a friend and go on my expedition, even though, you know, he could die any moment. Oh, my goodness. that was really hard. But Peter was very encouraging. So you've got to go. You mm-hmm. worked so hard to get to get make this happen. And I look forward to it. But uh, yeah, that was three months in the mountains, uh, surviving in only a rod and a rifle. So that was really my, my ultimate challenge. Like, could I do this? I've got 10 years of experience and uh, hopefully I can now um, survive on my own. I mean, with a friend, but I mean, without Peter. Yeah. So what was that like for you? That uh, those three months, um, I also suddenly realized how much Peter has done in all those times in terms of navigation, actually. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, we've got our own chores, like I pitch a tent and he gets the firewood. But as often happens with couples, you only see what you're doing. So I'm almost like, oh, I do everything. I have that in my <laughs> mind. I do everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. And- Oh, the very first night, my friend and I, she helped me with pitching the tent. And I thought, wow, this is so much easier. Look, this is all done and dusted in 10 minutes. And then we sit in the tent and then suddenly it starts raining. And I'm like, oh, where's the firewood? Because that was Peter's chore, you see. Mm-hmm. So suddenly I realized just how much he had done in his own pace. Um, and I didn't even really realize and also the navigation and just having someone who's more experienced give me a feeling of security. And suddenly it was like, you know, it was just me. Uh, I was the expedition leader, so to say. And my friend had no experience in New Zealand or with hunting. So uh, I had to take her along, which is perfectly fine. But suddenly I was the one who was responsible, which makes it a totally different experience. Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel after that compared to how you felt the first time? After the ex- uh, expedition? Yeah, when you were in control of it all. Yeah. 
um, yeah, I feel really great. It gives such a confidence that I know how to do this. Yeah. But also, if you think about the whole situation with Peter, kidney failure, he could die at any time. It was also important for me to know that I can live one without him and also in the mountains living mm. without him. Mm. Yeah. I was all, the question was, who am I without Peter? Because, of course, I met him when I was 22. Yeah. We've been 18 years together. So he's a big part of my life. <laughs> yeah, of course. You grew together, didn't you? And I mean, you, yeah. it's, there's not very many people who both have exactly the same interests and go ahead and sort of run with that as their their life purpose in a way. But this is something you've both done together. So yeah, I can imagine it was a big moment for you. Yes, indeed. It's really unique. It's a pity about the age difference. But for the rest, we are very similar indeed in mm. intention, what we want to do in life, which is explore and have an adventurous life, live in different cultures and countries, but also freedom is very important to us and that our time is ours and no one tells us in a day what we have to do. And that for me is freedom. It's Freedom is for everyone different, of course, mm. but for us, that's what we have in common. Yeah. And I, I mean, age difference. I mean, if he can heal himself like that, you know, he could be living till he's 200 years old, you know, so yes, you, never right. know, you never know. Um, so yeah. tell us about what you're doing right now, though, because I, I saw something about you working with Ben Fogel as well. You, you went on his TV program. Yes, he visited us just before we went to Australia in 2018, mm -hmm. when we were walking through Bulgaria. And he came back last summer. So he visited our cottage, or to, coincidentally also in Bulgaria. It's a pity he didn't visit us when we were in New Zealand, but never mind. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, that show has been on Channel 5. It was on the internet for some time, but taken off. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it was a wonderful experience to uh, meet him and to, to do this filming. And um, at the moment, we are hosting philosophy and nature courses. And um, after the Ben Fogel episode, we have loads and loads of applicants. So there's no problem there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we've done four already, but we don't know how many more we're going to do. Maybe we'll do something different. I want to come. <laughs> we do a whole podcast season about me trying to learn how to, to be in the wild and get used to creepy crawlies and eating brains. <laughs> I don't eat meat either. But, oh, yeah. The philosophy course is more about why do we think the way we do? And um, like the liberal individualism, why do we feel as Westerners the best thing, the most heroic thing is to survive on your own in the mountains? You know, those sort of questions. Mm. And uh, what is the mythos behind our thinking and all those sort of things? And um, yeah, what means things like freedom? What does that mean? Why do we even consider that? Those sort of things, yeah. I love that. Questions that you'd never normally ask and challenging our current mindsets. It's brilliant. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, yeah, a lot of um, people during COVID and things sort of woke up to a lot of the things that were going on and thinking, why do we do this this way? Like education, everything like that has really been pushed during that time. And I think change is happening at the moment, isn't it? A lot of people are wanting to find themselves becoming one with nature again. In lockdown, people suddenly had to do nothing and mm. rest. And so they had time to think. And then all the sort of these things and insights come up. Yeah, so that's exactly what happened to us in the forest. By doing nothing, a lot of um, changes can happen within your psyche. Mm. Yeah. You find yourself again. 
Yeah, whatever that means. <laughs> who is yourself? That's that's a question I ask myself. Who is who am I? Like who am I in a different country or without Peter? And I discovered that I am a different person in different places. Totally different. When I'm hosting a philosophy course, I'm a different person from when I go hunting in a forest. Mm. Right. That's so true it's because important. I find that even just when I'm with certain people, certain yeah, people exactly. will bring out a side of me. Yes, exactly. So I think it's important to put yourself in different places to keep realizing that you are quite flexible. Mm. We are like chameleons in a way. But if you do something long enough, you know, the same thing long enough, you are stuck in one personality and you might not even like that personality after a while. <laughs> You're like, who are you? I don't like you. I'm going yeah, back exactly. to the other place where I'm nicer. <laughs> yeah. And so you can change. And yeah. that's important for people to know. Yeah, 100%. You can be who you want to be. Yeah, and, but it's especially easy when you change places or countries or people to relate to or friends or, you know, job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So with all of this, how do we follow you? How, how can we kind of keep in touch with what you're doing? Well, I've got plenty of time in the last months and I'll be making these shorts, these YouTube shorts and other little videos. So you can follow me on YouTube. Uh, Miriam Lancewood in the wild is my, uh, my name there and uh, on my website. That's about it. And just type in Marion, Mariam Lancewood, and just then we can find everything that you're about, which is brilliant. So it's yeah, the last question, because I've taken up so much of your time, um, but I've loved every minute of it. Seriously, this has been fascinating for me. I've got plenty um, of time. We have an ocean of time. Oh, good. We do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to go like and just stand out in the wild. I mean, I did forest bathing. Um, before oh, and I'm gonna go, I just feel like I want to just go and do some more forest bathing again <laughs> just learn yeah very it. beneficial yeah mm-hmm. it's brilliant but who influences you who inspires you to be who you are today Peter <laughs> I knew you were gonna the only person here and he's with me all the time and he always keeps saying choose that courageous pathway courage is what made us human that's how we evolved so back in the day uh, they had to kill a mammoth and you can only do that by one courageous person who probably even sacrificed his own life for it. And that's how we survived, our tribe, you know, and that's how we got to be here. So, um, and now they often encourage fear, like be safe and don't, why would you risk it, you know? So yeah, to be courageous is the way to go. I love that. Thank you. That's, that is the best end to this podcast episode. So thank you <laughs> for being such an inspiration um, to all of us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been fantastic fun.